Hello, and welcome to another episode of Finding the Glitter in the Gold, a Middle Earth J.R. Tolkien chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And we are discussing the works and influences of the uh, writer John Ronald Rayle Tolkien, who was writing stories set in Middle Earth from 1937, when he was about 45, up until his death in 1973, when he still hadn't made an internally consistent narrative. So any mistakes we make with uh, getting small details wrong or uh, some just factual inaccuracies, who knows, uh, are purely because we are making like J.R.R. Tolkien and making shit up. (laughs) This episode is going to be a bit more based around his life and his influences and what his research and kind of experiences with like ancient cultures brought into uh, Middle Earth. And there'll be an episode later on where we talk more about his life. Uh, I started looking into it and he had some like pretty cool stories and it's also extensively documented because he was such a letter writer. Yeah, the amount of letters that they have that are both published and unpublished is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds thousands maybe i don't know and everyone has some story about him too like he was a he was a pretty memorable guy um especially as a teacher so there's a lot of anecdotes about him as well but um that's for a later episode this one i'll just kick it off talking a little bit about where he was coming from um i mean he was such a philologist as we've talked about already. And he got his degrees and all that kind of stuff, had to serve in World War I for a while. He got deferred until he got his degree, but then he had to ship out and uh, he was in France for a while. And then he was so sick all the time. So they sent him back and he got his wife pregnant and they had children. Honey, I'm home. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And while he was, you know, entertaining these many children that they had, he um, did have like the beginnings of The Hobbit as in like an oral history happening. Um, So this is a a Tumblr post that I sent a while ago, and we might have mentioned this before, but a person named Ryder Robin included a photo from some biography of Tolkien written by his son, Christopher. And Christopher Tolkien explains why his father, J.R.R. Tolkien, had to write down The Hobbit in the first place was because he remembered that I, then between four and five years old, was greatly concerned with petty consistency as the story unfolded. And that on one occasion I interrupted, last time you said Bilbo's front door was blue and you said Thorin had a gold tassel in his hood, but you've just said that Bilbo's front door was green and the tassel on Thorin's hood was silver. At which point my father muttered, damn the boy, and then strode across the room to his desk to make a note. (laughs) Uh, And how many four or five-year-olds remember those little kind of details from their you know, bed stories. It's, it's kind of the only thing you're able to focus on. You're like, I remember exactly this detail as you told it to me, because it was so clear in my mind. How can you not remember that? I have no brain space filled up with anything but this story. (laughs) So, uh, Tolkien made a intense study of epics and like oral history stuff and clearly loved telling stories out loud to his children. But one example of his work on uh, oral histories was um, 
his first civilian job after World War I was on the Oxford English Dictionary, which we've talked about, where he worked on uh, Germanic origin words beginning with the letter W. And then in 1920, he took up a post as reader in English language at the University of Leeds, and he was the youngest professor there. And he produced a Middle English vocabulary and a definitive edition of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight with E.V. Gordon, uh, which were both academic standards for several decades. And so he translated a few other works and then returned to Oxford in 1925 uh, with a fellowship at Pembroke College. And he began to tutor undergraduates privately in mid-1919. Most importantly, those of Lady Margaret Hall and St. Hugh's College, because these are both women's colleges and he was married at the time, which was unusual. Professor, professors were usually bachelors, but he married his wife. And that's an adorable story too. Yes, it is. Oh, we talked okay. a little bit a lot about it last time. Yeah, we'll go into more detail though, because there was like some drama there. Yes, there was. Uh, some religious drama, <laughs> but so he was t- able to tutor women because he was married. And during his time at Pembroke, he wrote The Hobbit down and he wrote the first two volumes of Lord of the Rings. And then in the 1920s as well, he undertook a translation of Beowulf, which he finished in 1926, but didn't publish. And it wasn't actually published until his son edited it and published it in 2014, more than 40 years after his death and almost 90 years after he'd completed it. Despite the fact that he never published this translation when he was alive, he still wrote about it. And he published an article 10 years after he'd finished his translation that someone named Lewis E. Nicholson on Wikipedia (laughs) said is widely recognized as a turning point in Beowulf and criticism. This is when Tolkien established the primacy of the poetic nature of the work as opposed to just its linguistic elements. So he tried to maintain the poetry of Beowulf and not just directly translate each word. The only edition of Beowulf I've ever read was Seamus Heaney's, but, Zoe's and my friend Kate actually worked on a translation of Beowulf uh, published by Grinnell College. And realized, I think might have been published before Tolkien's would have been published. Oh shit, you're if, right. If we were in college, now that we're going to date ourselves, but I think she did that 2012? Yeah. 2013, and then it was published and now is used as a uh, version that schools can use in class. Yeah. Yeah. So shout out to Kate on that one. Uh, Very cool. And Emily, our friend Emily as well. Kate's the one who listens to this though and has uh, opinions about what we say. So (laughs) (laughs) Emily just also worked on the translation with Kate. That's how they met. I know. And now we all live here. Wow. The best. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting too. the fact that Tolkien took such an interest in Beowulf and spent so much time on it. And uh, the consensus of scholarship at the time when he was, he was translating it was that um, Beowulf was kind of childish because there's battles with monsters rather than realistic tribal warfare. But Tolkien argued that the author of Beowulf was addressing human destiny in general, not as limited by a particular tribal politics. And therefore the monsters were essential to the poem, which is a very uh, bold stance to take. And I think it signals some like fantasy elements creeping in, you know? <laughs> Well, also when you can create stories that are fantastical and meant both for young and old alike, children's books aren't necessarily just for kids. And I think Tolkien always realized that when he created these sophisticated cultures and languages and oral stories for his kid, and then it 
became something bigger. Childhood's kind of when you are learning about the world and stories can help develop that and stuff. And just because you get consumed with like everyday stuff doesn't mean you stop caring about like fantasy elements and interesting stories and monsters and all that stuff. I mean, how many conversations do we have about fantasy dystopia novels? I mean, so much. Just like as our daily fare of reading. It's interesting. It's exciting. And you can really challenge philosophical and moral dynamics and questions and like what happens in this scenario and what happens if there were humans and monsters and aliens and like in, you know, all these different worlds and thoughts and ideas that you can't really necessarily tackle in the, any, any, any other way. There also came to be a few, uh, well, a lot of students passing through his classes remembered him just reciting the opening lines of Beowulf. And Kate's going to yell at me about this later, but he, <laughs> uh, according to Humphrey Carpenter, he would enter the room, fix the audience with his gaze, and suddenly begin to declaim in a resounding voice the opening lines of the poem in the original Anglo-Saxon, commencing with, with a great cry of wait the first word of this and several other old English poems, which some undergraduates took to being quiet. It was not such a, so much a recitation as a dramatic performance, an impersonation of an Anglo-Saxon bard in a mead hall, and it impressed generations of students because it brought home to them that Beowulf was not just a set text to be read for the purposes of examination, but a powerful piece of dramatic poetry. W.H. Auden, who is a writer who I enjoy very much, he had a J.R. Tolkien class and... <laughs> He wrote to him and he said, I don't think I have ever told you what an unforgettable experience it was for me as an undergraduate hearing you recite Beowulf. The voice was the voice of Gandalf. Epic. Oh God. I wish you all could see my face right now. <laughs> so excited. <laughs> so excited by all of us. So he, uh, he was a performer. J.R.R. Tolkien was a storyteller and a performer in the oldest Norse traditions of going into that mead hall and entertaining your children because, God damn it, they deserve something nice, but also, boy, they're annoying. <laughs> the uh, issue for parents anywhere and everywhere at all times. They're such harsh critics. Right. And it's interesting that he did so much work um, with Beowulf, and then he has been, he, Tolkien has said, that Beowulf is among my most valued sources. Um, so I think we could pause here and look at some of the influence that Beowulf did have in the actual Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and in the world of Tolkien. Yeah. So Beowulf obviously is full of monsters and had a very long list of creatures. Again, Kate is going to kill me for this pronunciation. Etenas und Yerf und Orkneas. Uh, which is translated as Etans or giants and elves and demon corpses. Uh, demon with, corpses? Demon corpses, but it sounds a lot like orcs. Orkneas? I love how French you get when you say foreign I words. Know, I get so French. I'm sorry, Kate. You're going to hate me. <laughs> um, yes, I do speak French. I do not speak Old English. And so obviously this kind of contributed to his creation of some of these races, like the orcs, and maybe that's where Ents came from. Apparently there was little information about what the Yelf were like and he combined scraps from all the old English sources that he could find to kind of like create this idea of what elves might be like for his own work, uh, which basically means that he was taking this old English Anglo-Saxon mythology 
to create his mythology. So does that mean that his mythology is then created on an even older tradition? Like he created an entire world, but is therefore including Anglo-Saxon traditions in this world, which I kind of find interesting as a combination of timelines and ideas and oral histories. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. Any writer is kind of stealing from someone else's work, even if they maybe don't realize it. Like there's no totally original story. And I think the reason that these stories lasted so long and were translated so much and had such an influence on so many writers is because they're so powerful. But I mean, like, does he mean to have Beowulf era in? Oh, like. Because like we've talked about how the timeline, like his fourth age, fifth, fifth age, whichever it was, would end in 1965, right? So then is he including Middle Earth in like Anglo-Saxon time history? He's writing his big crossover fan fiction. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Go for it, Tolkien. <laughs> Live your best life. Yeah, I mean, obviously he did. Everyone does take from everybody else. <laughs> it's just about how you put your own spin on it and the things you choose to focus on. And as we talked about last time, he chose to focus on some very specific shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, he made use of Beowulf uh, for aspects of the writers of Rohan. For instance, their land was the Mark, a version of the Mer... Merkia, where he lived in Merkian dialect, Mark. So it like the word for the Mark of the Ro- of the Rohirrim echoes the word used for a similar territory. A guy named Mark? No, just the land. Oh, it's called Mark. Yes, the Ritter Mark, also just called the Mark. Oh, like with all that those plains and like those weird. Yeah, that that's like the the Rohirrim word for their land is the Ritter Mark. Very similar. Um, the Golden Hall of Rohan, well, the Golden Hall of Meluseld has echoes of um, Beowulf's approach to Herot in when he approaches the Great Hall uh, in the Mead Hall. I sent you a Tumblr post about the Rohirrim and kind of this sort of Norse society thing. I'm glad there's precedent for it. So this is from Emily at Mercwoodis.tumblr and Mavin at SaltMavin. Mercwoodis says, damn, I just realized that since the Rohirrim don't read or write, wise but unlearned, writing no books but singing many songs, that means Eowyn couldn't read or write, and since she marries Nerdboy McGee, who is Faramir, who loves reading and writing more than anything, you can bet your bottom dollar one of the first things that happens in their courtship slash marriage is Faramir and Eowyn wholesome tutoring sessions in the Ministerith Library. <laughs> and someone tagged this, stop, Eowyn really is the dumb jock of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag, what would you do if we kissed in the meanest truth library? <laughs> and then the interesting thing that comes out of this part of this conversation is when Salt Mavin says, I feel like it'd be an exchange. Faramir teaches Eowyn his love of books and writing, and in return, she teaches him the many, many songs of the Rohirrim that have never been written anywhere. Yeah, and then someone else, uh, Mark Wittest again, takes the takes the reins and says, what if they co-author a book of Rohirrim folktales and history together? Also, Faramir keeps trying to overanalyze everything, like, ah, I see, the horse keeps tripping because we all must stumble in our way through the unpredictable nature of this world. And she's like, no, babe, the horse keeps tripping because it's funny, and this is a story used to cheer up frightened children. But I'm... <laughs> A beautiful image, and I love that it has some precedent in that Norse mythology. And they did that in the costuming choices for Lord of the Rings, too. There's a lot of, like, the cloak pins and the, the earth tone outfits, and it kind of does evoke that, like, Viking sort of feel. Even the, the way the carvings are done on the Hall of Meduseld 
is very evocative of kind of the the Viking carvings and the way the heads are shaped and absolutely I love it I just think this is such an interesting idea that the tumblr folks are talking about because it really combines in essence Tolkien's own kind of process of writing like everything that he had started as oral history as most stories have to and then becomes written but I just love this image of these two cultures combining so that way Rohirrim's songs can become written and then be passed down through generations. And then who isn't to say that hundreds and hundreds of years from now, you suddenly hear the haunting song that Eowyn sings when her brother is being carried to burial that I could not, I could not find the words for, but I'll, I'll keep searching. Like it wasn't included in the book. It was part of the movie. Oh, well, it was probably in the book, but I couldn't find in the movie referencing which one it was. Mm. Yeah. No, I'm not seeing anything about them singing, but sometimes they take some of the songs and the lyrics from things in the appendices or the Silmarillion or a lot of other books. So I'll keep looking and keep doing that research. Uh, I was talking to my mom, and apparently I now have eight copies of the trilogy. Like total complete trilogy, you have eight copies of the whole thing. Yes, because we have the the what, the illustrated Alan Lee one. We have the one that's actually bound in red leather, and then we have like no have like art pieces of this shit. Damn. Yeah, there's another version that we have that's gold bound, and, or like not real gold, but like gold color. And then I have apparently now four various copies that are all in paperback that are all dog-eared and worn. And I think one of them got dropped in the bathtub at one point because it is not very salvageable. <laughs> but you can't resist keeping it. No, of course <laughs> not. I can't have an uneven number of copies. Come on. <laughs> well, it's great that you have them with you now to comfort you in these COVID times. They are such a comfort. <laughs> Another interesting, like, old pagan influence. Um, in 1928... Tolkien was asked to investigate and translate a Latin description on a cult temple that was excavated in Gloucestershire. That was from 4th century. And it was inscribed for the god Nodens. And the Anglo-Saxon name for this place was Dwarf's Hill. Uh, and Tolkien did an entire like translation of the word Noden. And this place kind of became a big influence in the Lord of the Rings, because not only does it look a little bit like the Hobbit holes in terms of their circular appearance, but then Dwarf Hill also might have influenced the Lonely Mountain and the Mineshaft holes in the Mines of Moria. Apparently, um, the rest of the inscription for this, this temple was, Sylvianus has lost a ring and has donated one half of its worth to Nodens, and Nodens got traced to the Irish hero... Uh, Nuada Argetium, Nuada of the Silver Hand. Um, and so a Tolkien scholar thought that this combines a god hero, a ring, dwarves, and a silver hand, which is kind of interesting because there's a lot of aspects of that in, in the book. Like that is the Lord of the Rings in a lot of ways. What's a silver hand? It doesn't really say besides the fact that maybe it's like a, like a, a sign of power or, or money or wealth. Could be magic in that point, too. Yeah. I know Irish myths have a lot of magic in them. 
Yeah, there's a lot of cultures and mythologies that influence Tolkien that we will talk more about later, um, including Celtic mythology, Christian mythology, Finnish, some Finnish mythology. Yeah, the Christian stuff will probably be a soon episode. I want to talk about him and C.S. Lewis, and they were both pretty uh, religious figures. Yeah, and we talked about it a little bit last time. So we have to do a whole episode about it, obviously. Of course. Um, there was also a singular Old English word that Tolkien translated. It's Sigilwara, and in the Codex Gen- uh, Junius, it was meant to mean Ethiopian. And Tolkien wondered why there was a word in, with this meaning and conjecture that it had once had a different meaning, which he explored in detail in his essay, Sigilwara Land, which was published in two parts in 1932 and 1934. But the way he split this word up, Sigil being sun or jewel, and Huara meaning suit black. Um, so, suit? Suit. S-O-O-T. Suit? Is it suit? Black. Suit. Oh, black. Oh, Dragon, wagon, suit, so whatever. <laughs> and so from this one word came three concept, concepts in Middle-earth. The Silmaril, which is a forged sun jewel that play a part in the um, First Age and Second Age myth- mythos. Uh, Balrog, which is the fire demon of Middle-earth. And Haradrim, which are the men of the south. Because he thought that maybe Sigilwara meant suit black fire demon. And then he kind of split that up into three different things. So he took this one word from Old English and used it to create a bunch of different ideas and words in several different of his own languages. Yeah, I, there's you've included a very handy little chart here that I'm checking out, and it's very fast. You see the words Siegel and Hirwa, which are the uh, Anglo-Saxon slash Latin words, feeding into Sigawara, and then you see Sigawara branching out in his own mind into Silmaril, Balrog, and Herodrim, which is so cool. Yeah, the combination of Old English and Latin and Gothic influences in just one word and three different concepts. It's also funny, too, that he wrote a two-part essay on one fucking word. That's Tolkien for you. That's linguists in general for you. They're wild. We get really nerdy about languages, okay? I mean, as we should. Everyone should. Languages are so much fun. We keep going on tangents about them, so. Clearly. Well, we kind of have a bias. Yeah. We love words. As did Tolkien, which is kind of perfect. He made it his whole damn job as a philologist, which I can never say the first time. I just keep editing myself so it sounds like I said it right. (laughs) I still can't believe he wanted to write the entire book in Elvish. In some of my research, I wasn't intending to talk about this here, but he um, was exposed pretty early in life to the idea of invented languages by his uh, two of his female cousins, mm-hmm. which was very interesting to read about. And his investigations into new languages, one of his cousins, I think Mary, uh, kept kept up with him in terms of making new languages, but he would make up his own alphabets and he'd make up fake histories for languages. And when he was a little kid and he learned some Esperanto and stuff, which is a completely fabricated, like pre-built language, which is pretty cool. I wonder if that encouraged him to just create his own, like seeing that there was a person who made Esperanto and then tried to spread it as a universal language. I mean, he just loved the construction of these things, I think. And the concepts you could convey that way. I think that's very cool. 
and the sound of things. We've talked a bit about the uh, phonoesthetics of language and how that played a part in his work and his language creation. Yeah, the musicality for sure. Especially when he is so into Beowulf with the rhythm and the sound of the words and the kennings and that the beat of the poetry, but how it's not just about what's being said, but how it's being said and how it sounds. The fact that the bard would have to memorize the entirety of these old English poems and then recite them. And so it had to be in this driving format that's almost like a song. Yeah, it would help for memory and it would help for keeping people engaged too. You don't want to just tell stuff in a monotone. You want to kind of spark, like, I don't know, draw them in at different points with like clever turns of phrase or fun little puns. I'm sure there's a shitload of puns in Beowulf. There are all the kennings too, the mm-hmm. two word description. That makes me wonder if Faramir and Eowyn did do this, uh, you know, record of Rohan songs. <laughs> I can just imagine Faramir being really, really nerdy about it and really specific and like literate. And then Eowyn to be the one being like, nah, man, like it has to sound a certain way. It has to flow. How are we supposed to remember this? Come on. Like make it sound good too, dude. Priorities, but still both important to maintain, you know, the feel of a language and the feel of a story, not just literally what's being said. And how do you do that? How do you translate that um, rhythm onto a page? There's been some pretty cool attempts with different translations of things that um, visually I think are pretty cool to see. I haven't read Beowulf in a long time, but um, I recently was reading some uh, fragments of Sappho by Anne Carson. Yes, so good. And she did it really well because we just mostly have fragments of poetry apart from ones that were quoted by other authors uh, in more extensive ways, but there will just be like tiny pieces that are visible, sometimes just letters that you can see on the page. And the way that she broke it up was by visually just taking a whole page and kind of mapping it out. And she provided the Greek as well uh, on the separate section. It really gives you a sense of like, you're just squinting at this page and you cannot piece anything together except these few little fragments of this beautiful love poetry. And I think that that shows up sometimes with the ways that people translate epics. I remember seeing some translation of Norse poetry where they had split it into two columns because there tended to be this kind of like back and forth rhythm to the way that it was spoken. Our version of Beowulf in high school was that way too. It had the space in the middle of the lines. Yeah, and they included the Old English on one page too, which I love. Mm-hmm. It feels really helpful just to be able to see how it would have been laid out if I could actually, you know, read the cool language that it's written in, but I am sadly monolinguistic. Monolinguistic, but appreciative of a lot of languages. I know a lot of bits and pieces of languages and speak too fluently. Yeah, which is very cool. I mean, I think it gives you a sense of the context of the world in a different way. Language to me always feels like you get a little bit more insight into a different culture, like knowing what a word is, knowing what a idiom is, that kind of thing. Well, and they did some, they did some studies of people who spoke Spanish and Swedish bilingually, weird combo, but okay. Um, And apparently they, depending on what language they're speaking in, they conceptualize time 
and the passage of time in very different ways because of the words and the manner in which time is spoken of in the different languages. Which makes me wonder, did Tolkien include that in Elvish or in his languages? Like, if I were to go learn Elvish, how would that affect my view of their culture? Would it? Is it sophisticated enough to to have that influence or because it's kind of within just a literature context and not the actual culture, would I get that that aspect? I don't know. I wonder about that with fabricated languages. Because mm-hmm. there, I mean, with Esperanto, you were drawing on a lot of different languages and a lot of kind of um, standard romance commonalities to build this language that this guy thought would be a universal. And then... Tolkien was building languages entirely from scratch, but with his own bias, obviously, and his own experience with uh, languages like Finnish and Old English and English itself. Yeah, it wouldn't be completely from scratch because of the, the amount of influences he had. But it was him trying to create a language that was entirely in its own context, but he was pulling from contexts that exist in our real world. So maybe this makes sense that he thought of the timeline of Middle Earth connecting up with the current, you know, world of men as it has been throughout history. Translator bias, should we say? (laughs) There's always translator bias. It's cool to see that, though. I don't know. I enjoy that for its own merit as well. Like, you get to know a translator based on the way that they choose to depict things. And I mean, Anne Carson makes bold choices with her stuff, and it's why my acupuncturist Michael loves her so much. And why so many other people do as well. And then you get into these kind of ruts sometimes with translation. Like I was reading an article recently about how um, they're translating, doing another translation of the Odyssey, but a woman is translating it this time. Mm-hmm. And so the way that she is choosing to translate certain words and concepts is different than it has been because so many men have translated it. And so she's coming at it with a totally different eye for that. Or even like... um the Mists of Avalon, which was written by a woman for to retell the tale of the Knights of the Round Table in King Arthur's court, but from the female perspective of the woman in the court. Yeah, It was a fascinating book to kind of think of it from that view because we only ever hear of the Knights of the Round Table from the very masculine-focused side. There have been some really cool interpretations of that, and there's actually going to be a Gawain and the Green Knight movie coming out with Dev Patel. What? Yeah, Dev Patel as Gawain. Cool. I'm excited. We can Zoom watch it together. (laughs) Yeah. Play at the exact same time. I've done it before and I'll do it again. (laughs) Um, But this is kind of the joy of retelling stories. We talked a little bit earlier about how um, there's nothing new under the sun. And we come at that with a, from a point of joy where it's like these stories are still worth telling and there's still new ways to interpret them. And so just because you've pulled on some common story that humanity has been telling for a super long period of time doesn't mean there's not still something new to be said there. And that's what I love about Tumblr and all the weird deep dives we've taken into Tumblr is people mm-hmm. are taking the Lord of the Rings and then branching off creating ideas and concepts and mulling over, well, if it was like this or if this were the thing or how cool would this be? Mm -hmm. Fan fiction does similar things, but sometimes with a less like intellectual focus, I guess. It's a little bit harder too, because you're trying to tell a story in the established canon. And this one, it kind of is just like, but what if we took it from this direction? 
What if there were Ents in a lot of different climates? I mean, I love that idea. Right? Yeah, palm tree Ent. I think that's a Pokemon. (laughs) I don't like palm trees. No, they're not great. (laughs) I think they're placid and awkward. (laughs) What about like a Japanese maple then? That'd be a cool Ent. Yeah. Ooh, what about a willow ant? I swear there was one in the in the movie. I don't know if there was like a weeping willow. Like I'm picturing mm. like Pocahontas style weeping willow. Grandmother willow, yeah. Maybe that's the unwives. Grandmother, they're all willow trees. They're all grandmother willows. I love it. That's another episode though, and I think we have concluded this episode here. Just shooting the shit about Tolkien's. Old Norse linguistic uh, traditions and how they influenced Middle-earth in some very specific and cool ways, mostly around the Rohirrim, which is cool. Yeah, I found a lot, or at least the the author I was looking at, Shippy, Jonathan Shippy, focused a lot on Rohan. I don't know if that was his own bias or where his own interest was. But yeah, a lot of, well, but I mean, but a lot of just the, the places and the names and the species, the races. We're all from various Old English sources. I mean, he was sitting looking at these translations day after day and looking at the words and probably trying to make them, you know, stay interesting to him. So thinking about his own Middle Earth world and how it could relate to these specific words and how he could incorporate them. It's a good way to uni- like unite your work interests and your creative interests at the same time. I applaud this. I do. Th- I did read at some points that he got so into writing Lord of the Rings and all Lord of the Rings things that he would uh, often forget to do his work for school because as a professor, you're still supposed to do research and all those kinds of things. And I guess he couldn't quite get them to be like, yeah, writing Lord of the Rings, that's your research. That counts. No, that was extra credit and it took up more time than his, his paid work. He was pissed off at all the office hours he had to have for his students. Probably. Could be writing. Or he would just go on long tangents with them about the Lord of the Rings. Let me think about my ideas. In Beowulf, there is this word. What do you think, laddie? (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Finding the Glitter in the Golds. It was fun having you all. (laughs) It's always fun having you listen to us. Um, You've probably found us through SoundCloud, but we have moved over to Anchor, and we are now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Overcast. And if you want to subscribe to us on any of those various uh, podcasting platforms, that would be great. A rating, a review, recommend us to somebody uh, if if you think that they would enjoy the kind of shit that we shoot. if but you yeah. know Ian McKellen and you want to pass it on. Please don't. Please do. <laughs> oh, God. I want to meet him. I guess I'm not ashamed of this. I'm very proud of this. I think they'd love it, personally. But Why not? I mean, it's a beautiful series. It's a, it's a beautiful experience for all these wonderful people. And we're glad that you also get to be a part of it. <laughs> so we will see you on the Shire side. <laughs>